Uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please, if, uh, if you brought them with you, uh, turn into uh, uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30 today as we continue on in our study of Philippians. And if you would like to use a pew Bible, there should be one close to you on uh, your row there, and uh, that would be on page 980, page 980. Um. Kent Hughes, in, um, as I was studying this week, as I looked at his commentary on Philippians, and particularly this passage, he had this, um, uh, I guess, illustration that really, I think, takes us to the place we need to be as we consider the passage before us today. Uh, he said this, that uh, of Shakespeare's several plays involving King Henry V, they all begin with Prince Henry as a vain, dissolute young man who spends time drinking and carousing with, with old John Falstaff. But after a while, when, when Henry's father, the king, dies, something happens in Henry, and he changes. The prince... Henry then realizes his unworthiness and that the crown will be his through no virtue of his own. And so he confesses to his dying father, you won it, you wore it, you kept it, and gave it to me. Then upon the crown being given to him, Henry vows to live a worthy life. He says this, The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea, where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. So what we see here is change. From then on, Henry V becomes one of the worthiest and most noble kings of England. Change. There is something of this in the opening statement of our text today as we peek once again into the letter of the Philippians that Paul wrote. We're going to see basically three things unfold before us this morning. We're going to look at the gospel imperative. We're going to look at the gospel definition. And then this will lead to key aspects of a gospel-driven life. And so let's open our hearts this morning to God's Word and let's hear Him speak to us through St. Paul as we read Philippians 1, 27-30. Would you read with me? Verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord stands forever. 
We thank you for the truth that has been communicated to us through St. Paul that we're able to peel into that letter and, and see the wondrous things that he wrote as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that they, these words engage our lives. It calls us, Lord, to look fondly upon the gospel and the deep love that you have for us. And so this morning as we consider this passage, enlighten it to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that we may walk worthy of the gospel. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look, first of all, at that gospel imperative that's here, the gospel imperative. Looking in at verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I'm with you or absent from you, he is saying, whatever happens to me in any event, no matter what, be sure to live your lives, conduct yourselves as believers in Christ. Now, this is a pretty strong imperative that Paul has written here. However, I want you to hear a little bit of a difference in a few other translations by scholars and see if you can catch the difference. Listen to these translations. This is Moses, Moses Silva's translation of the passage. He says this, Behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. William Hendrickson puts it this way, Continue to exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Did you catch the difference there? They use the word citizen. Citizenship. Now where did they get that translation? That's not what you'll read probably in any of your English translations. That's not what you'll read. Where did they get that? Well, it comes from the Greek text. And scholars say that one of the reasons why you don't catch this is because it's a little bit difficult to translate. And I think maybe the reason why it's difficult to translate into English is because Paul appears to be picking up on a cultural motif. And thus he, he's bringing to mind to those in Philippi the category of citizenship that we may not quite understand in translation. And so Paul is using a term that would have been commonly used in a social or communal, a communal or political discourse in Rome and Philippi. If you remember, this is a Roman colony. And, and this term, conduct yourself, was the normal term that would have been used when a civil leader or an upstanding elder in the community or even the state said something like this, act like good Romans. Be good Roman citizens. Remember that you're a citizen of Rome and act accordingly. Realize your privileges and your responsibilities. You know, it's kind of like if you're from the South. You go, you're a little boy, and you're going to go over to the neighbor's house. And your mom says to you, no, no, remember where you came from, and remember whose you are. It's, it's that sort of a flavor here. So the Apostle Paul, it appears, is deliberately using this terminology because the Philippians were Romans. They were a Roman colony. And more than this, they're, they're proud of it. They're proud of it. So he is drawing a parallel comparison here. He wants them to remember that they are actually citizens, not just of Rome, but of a greater, more glorious kingdom. 
Now you are of the kingdom of God, a greater state and empire than Rome. They have, by grace, become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's a great and glorious kingdom, and therefore, by grace, they are called here by Paul to live their lives accordingly. So he says, continue to exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so as we think about that for us, as we think about this imperative that Paul lays out for us here, let me ask you a few questions to consider. How do you view your life in terms of citizenship? Would you consider yourself more of an American than a citizen of the kingdom of God? How might you be living in and engaging in your world as a kingdom citizen? Do you think in those terms of how you live? Do you think about who you are and whose you are as you're living your life? Are you an actively involved citizen in the workplace? On the campus? At home? Are you striving? Are you serving? Are you loving? What about the other side of this, more of a personal side of things? Does Christianity actually make a difference in your life? Could you look at your calendar and your bank statement and maybe other things that point to how you live your life and see that your faith matters? Do we, as God's people, live like we are And think about this, blood-bought, grace-granted citizens of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply, are we living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Here's the thing. We must never let our manner of life, uh, in terms of being worthy of the gospel, uh, be turned backwards. We always have to look at the central fundamental of the faith, of the Christian faith, and grasp the essence of the gospel before we set up the practical expressions of that. What Paul is saying here is is that the first and fundamental thing of living out of the gospel of faith is the gospel itself. So many times we want to put the cart before the horse. We want to think about we need to get right and then get the gospel. But what Paul starts with here is the gospel. The gospel is here and then we live in light of that gospel. And so let's be reminded then in our second point of of what the gospel is like before we move on to his, his very practical steps and what that looks like. So what is the gospel? Let's let's have a definition of the gospel that we can think about. Simply, the gospel is the good news or the story of what God has done to save sinners like you and like me. It is not about um, what we must do or even can do, but what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. So what does that look like? It's very simple. In the beginning... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's really where the gospel begins. 
This is where it all begins, and the gospel has its beginning here. The Bible tells us that God created you and me and the universe and everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that we smell, everything we taste. He created it all because He is our Creator God. And in light of that, because He is the Creator, He has the right to tell us what to do. He created us to love. He created us to serve. He created created us to enjoy being with Him forever and ever. Now God is not only a good Creator God, but He's also perfectly holy and righteous, which means He is completely pure and hates all evil. So what happened with our forefathers and foremothers is that they rebelled against God. We read about this in the Genesis. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Instead of seeking God and loving Him, they rebelled and all of us after have rebelled. And we've done wrong. What the Bible tells us is this places us in danger of eternal punishment. Now the issue is, is we rightly deserve this because of our sin against the Creator. And so what He says is that one day we'll die. And we'll be held accountable. And we'll be held accountable, the Scripture says, down to, to this. I mean, it's pretty interesting how it puts it. We'll be held accountable for every thought, for every word, and every deed that we have done. That's scary stuff. Even our own thoughts. This is the backdrop to the gospel. Once you really soberly think about that, and you look at that, and you realize how far we've strayed, and and to be, be honest with you, sometimes as I look at my own life, I think, I'm not sure I really get how far I've strayed away from a holy God. I'm not sure I totally understand how pure and holy He is. It's like I was reading one of those uh, memes this week. I love to see those that are very thoughtful, thought-provoking and everything. And it it was a quote from someone, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it said, once God decides to do something, He has the right to do it, and there's no question about it because He's God. But how many of us would say, how could God do that? How many times a week do we think, why would you do that, Lord? He's God. Once you read the Scriptures and you look at the people involved through the history of redemption, you see the brokenness. In the men's study, we've been studying in the book of Judges. And what's interesting is, is you'll look at these people in the book of Judges and you think, that person is a mess. But then you flip over the book of Hebrews and they're in the hall of faith. Wow. Broken people. Messed up people. People that would do things that would make us go, how could they be in the hall of faith? They are. But maybe a hundred years from now, maybe a thousand years from now, someone would look at us and say, how could they be in the hall of faith? We are held accountable for every thought, word, and deed. This is the the backdrop of the gospel. And it tells us why we so desperately need the gospel. So here's the good news. Here is the gospel. 
that even though we are sinners who deserve punishment, who deserve hell, God in His great love and mercy has provided a Savior so that we may be forgiven. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who who gave Himself to be taken to a cross to be punished for the sin of all of us. All who would turn and trust in Him. He died. And then the Scripture tells us that three days later, He rose from the dead. He rose out of the grave. And now he sits at the Father's right hand. If we looked at you know, just a few redemptive summaries, one of them would be, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. That's it. Or maybe you'd prefer a Bible verse which tells it all. Which Where should we go but John 3.16? So God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are summaries of the gospel. This is the gospel. And God commands us to turn away from sin and rebellion against Him. To trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness and salvation. And if we turn toward God and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done, we are saved and born again into a new and eternal life with God the Creator. And so what that tells us is is that the gospel changes Everything. It changes us. And sometimes when we look into our hearts, and I know, especially it's interesting to me because when I was younger, I would look at my older self and think, I'll be so much holier then. And now I realize, man, I am no different than I was sometimes when I was 16 years old. What is wrong with you? But I trust in the Lord to work in my heart. I trust in the Lord to change us. Sometimes I need to refocus. Sometimes I need to get my mind back into what the Lord has not only revealed to me about the gospel, but what He is teaching me about how it changes me. And I need to trust that. That's one of the reasons why I believe He has called us as His people to gather here every Sunday morning is to hear these words because we need them desperately, don't we? This afternoon, you may leave this place and be in your room somewhere and be thinking, how can I think such wickedness? How can I have just said those words to my spouse, to my child? How can I be so angry at that person? We need the gospel. We need to understand the fundamentals of the gospel. Now for Paul... As he is writing this letter, as I said last week, he knows that this is all true. Everything that the Bible reveals about the history of redemption, all the, the ugliness, all the, the, the almost failures of a nation, all behind it, he's working and he's establishing, and he's holding it together to in the fullness of time Christ came. Born of a woman, born under the law, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul knew that this was true. And he could say with confidence, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, if I live, I can serve him. If I die, I'm in his presence. 
So he not only had an experience with the risen Savior when he was stopped on the road to Damascus, um, he, as he heard the voice of Jesus, why are you persecuting me? I don't know, who are you? And, and Paul comes to faith, but he also goes off and he hears the testimonies of all the apostles who were with Jesus. And he listens to them. And he hears them. And so, as he listens to these and he has the Holy Spirit poured upon him, he knows that this is all true. So he could sit in a prison and say those words for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he was perfectly content in that. The Apostle Paul it's urging, is urging us here to know and to believe the gospel as he has been an example to us. He is saying, live, conduct yourself, behave like a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in this, he's going back to the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the only way you can live in that way is to, is to grasp the gospel is to embrace the gospel. For it is from this fundamental foundation of the gospel that we are called to live. As one writer said here, I just love this quote. He said, for Paul here, the responsibility for the Philippian spiritual growth rested with their appropriation of the riches of Christ. So basically, if we were to put that into different words, what we would say is this. We look at Christ and we say, you are glorious. We look at Christ and we delight in Him. And in that being before Him in His glory, in that delighting in Him, in that receiving His love, we appropriate the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We appropriate it and we live out of that. We never live in such a way to earn that because we can't earn it. It's a gift. And so as you receive the gift, as you appropriate it, that's wherein we live. That's where Paul says, now let me give you some key aspects to the aspects of a gospel-driven life. Let me tell you then how you are to live this way. Now, I want you to think as we move into our third point, I want you to think about this just for a minute because if you were to say, if I were to tell you, I want you to write a paper for me on how you need to live according to the gospel. <clears throat> it may be a little different than what Paul says here. But Paul, you know, he's inspired by the Spirit. I want you to remember that as he writes this. He is inspired by the Spirit. And he's, and he's telling us some things here that are so appropriate for every age. I mean, you look at any age in the history since Jesus ascended into heaven, and you can apply this so strongly. So I want you to hear these, and I want you to think about them in light of it being inspired by the Spirit, empowered by the Gospel. Inspired by the Spirit, empowered by the Gospel. Let's look at verse 27 again together. 
He says, so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, so, excuse me just a moment. The first thing that Paul says here is is that we must be unwavering in our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unwavering in our commitment. So so the words here that he uses are stand firm. So I want you to look at it like cling tenaciously. And what are you clinging tenaciously on or toward or holding on to? What are we doing here? We're holding on to God. We're holding on to Jesus. We're holding on to the truth that He has revealed in the Scripture of the unfolding of the Gospel. But we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not alone, but... And it's, it's interesting here because it's to the people, but in the company of one another. And I'll get to that again a little bit deeper here in just a moment. But I want you to have that picture. We don't do this alone. We do this in the power of the Holy Spirit in community. And so what we're doing, what He's calling us here to do is to believe again in the Gospel. Believe in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. To be rooted in Jesus. To be loving Jesus. To be hoping in Jesus. To be clinging to Jesus. And to be clinging to His authoritative Word which we receive by faith. And so once again, we, you know, I talk about this a lot because it's a fundamental issue. He has called us to be people of the Word. And so we, you know, we have a reading uh, challenge every year where we're reading through the Scriptures together. Um, I'm a little behind this week. I got caught up and I got behind. Um, stay caught up. Be in the Word. Not only be in the Word in terms of studying it, I mean, in terms of reading it quickly, but take time to study some passages. Like if you're in the men's study or you're uh, one of my Wednesday evening uh, guys, you know, you stay in the Word. If you're in the women's Bible study, you stay in the Word. You go deep. So you go broad and deep, broad and deep. And so he, 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 he is challenging us here to be loving Him, to be listening to Him, to be living out as that, that community rubs us, as the Word rubs us, as the Spirit is in us. We're living out that truth and we're holding on tenaciously to it. And so what Paul is doing here, what he's saying here is, is that he wants to, He wants to hear that they have been absolutely unwilling to part with a gospel or to see it compromised in any way. He is saying, live in the purity of that gospel. Don't let anything distract you. Whether it's living in the gospel, whether it's defending the gospel, whether it's proclaiming the gospel, let us not compromise the gospel of grace. We shouldn't allow for any alternatives. We shouldn't allow for any substitutes or let any fancy opinions of the day sway us. There are so many. If you just look back in time, you see it over and over again. The the words of the day, the words of the day, the opinions of the day. And what Paul is saying is, is hold on to the pure gospel which has been passed on to us from Paul and the apostles. So, So again, as you're reading this word, because, okay, we take the word, 
If we are dwelled by the Spirit, the Spirit confirms the Word. We ought to all be, if you're sitting there today, you ought to be listening to me and saying, is Patrick really preaching the Word of God? Is he getting off here in any place? And if I am, you need to talk to me and say, I think you're wrong here, brother. I hope I receive it graciously. <laughs> but the issue is, is that we, as we receive this Word, we take it in. And it, 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 it's, it's like that the person that's, been te- that's taught how to tell counterfeit dollar bills, you know. How they tell counterfeit dollar bills is they really know what the real one looks like. And so as they get into that dollar bill and they see it over and over again, anytime they see one that's different, they're able to tell it's counterfeit. Get into the real gospel. Trust in it. Be unwavering in it. Don't let anything distract you from it. Folks, let's just put it this way. I see my son sitting back there. And um, you know, he had his play this weekend. And... and, and uh, and my daughter and my and Lilybug too, and they're up there, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, they're so young, and I look at all those young people, and and last night, you know, at the closing of the ceremonies, they're they're remembering uh, or they're pointing out the seniors that are graduating. Everybody's crying, you know, there's tears flowing everywhere, and it's their last one. But here's the thing: I remember those seniors when they were about that tall. Life goes like that. Folks, we don't have time to be distracted from the gospel. That's what I'm trying to say. We don't have time to be uh, wavering with the gospel. Life is too short. You know, you look at the political things of today, whether it be um, uh, socialism or whether it be a conservative uh, thinking in terms of, of uh, political involvement. And I look at it and sometimes I step back and I'm like, the reason why these people want socialism is because of the echo of Eden. Because God provided for all of our needs, didn't He? And we rebelled. Have you ever thought about that? Instead of looking at them as enemies, that they're broken. And and the folks over here that are conservative want things to grow and to be good and, and flourishing. They want Eden too. You see it. Somewhere in the middle there is the gospel, right? Is the gospel, the truth, the reality. Everything else is a facade trying to get back to Eden, which is not going to happen. Why? Because Jesus is creating a new heavens and a new earth. And and for some reason, for some way, somehow it's going to be more glorious than even Eden ever was. But people are broken. Do you see it? Look at the world through the lens of the gospel. Look at it. Be uncompromising. And so, this is what Paul is calling us to do if we're walking worthy of the gospel. Secondly, I want you to think about this one as well. 
We must be unwavering in our commitment to unity. These things really in the passage are really tied together. It was hard to even think through this, how I wanted to divide it. If you look at the verse again and let it sink in, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here Paul is painting a picture of what it looks like as a team. He's saying we're a team. Now, there's a word here that's athletic. Um, some people look at it more of a military picture that he's painting. So whether it's an athletic picture or a military picture here, here's the thing. The idea is that we are walking together shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, all going about the same thing and lockstep with one another, faithfully, steadfastly, fulfilling our responsibility, the whole body together, working for what here? For the gospel. Do we think about life and church and ministry together in those terms? Would we live for our own selves, for our own homes, for our own careers? Or do we live together for the gospel? Perhaps you've seen the old movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. At the end of the movie, the Romans are trying to find Spartacus and he's sitting there with the captured prisoners and slaves. And they're all thinking that they're all going to be executed They're all going to be crucified. But the commander says this. He says that they can all live and be spared from one of the worst, cruelest deaths known to man if anyone will just point out Spartacus. Just point him out. He'll all live. We'll crucify him. So you see Spartacus, Kirk Douglas there, and he's thinking. And he knows. See, this is the deal. This This is one of those switcheroo things, right? He knows that really what they're saying is, Spartacus, you need to give yourself up to save these men. That's really what the guy's saying. And so he, you could see his mind thinking about it, and he's thinking, you know, all these people could live, and he, and he stands up, and as soon as he stands up, the guy beside him stands up, and he goes, I am Spartacus. And then right to the left of him, some other guy stands up and says, I am Spartacus. And then all around him, all the men in different ways, at different times are standing up. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. Brothers and sisters, that's unity right there. That is loyal love. We step out together and say, I am Christ." No, I am Christ. No, I am Christ. And when we say that together in unity, what we're saying is, is I'm not just for myself, but I am for Christ. And what that means in turn is, is that I am for you. And you are for me. Because we are Christ. We belong to Him. We are in community Gather. Now, you know what? That's a different community to be sure. It's a little odd, you know? If you guys remember Keith Green, I always loved uh, some of his live performances um, when I was a young Christian. One of them I'll never forget. He goes, I still remember, you know, how creepy I thought Christians were. You know, with their little creepy bumper stickers and all that. And I used to laugh and think, that is so true. We're so weird. We're a different group. Sure we are. We're people made up of different uh, uh, ethnicities and, 
and, and, and different countries and different sexes and, 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 and all sorts of differences. And he throws it all together and he says, this is my glorious church. But then he gives us his desires and he gives us, and through his word, he gives us his desires, he gives us his morals, he gives us his values. And so we're different than the world. And because of Jesus, we are to love one another and stand together. And what that looks like is, is we join in, we sign up, we be a part, we pray often, we encourage much, we stand together in love as we strive for the faith of the gospel. We are the people of God. It's so easy to individualize our faith, isn't it? It's very easy. However, that's not Paul's vision. Uh, That's not the Bible's vision. So therefore, it is not God's vision. Why? Because, think about it just for a minute. Step back and think about the big picture. We're made in the image of God, aren't we? The triune God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we were made to resemble our triune God in community. And so let us be unwavering in our commitment to unity for the faith, for the gospel. Striving together to extend the gospel by our manner of living and our verbal witness to the gospel. This is what he's called us to. To have an unwavering commitment to unity. Finally, we are to live in fearless lives against real opposition. Now what's interesting here is is if you're reading along, it's almost like he just slipped that in there. Opposition? Where is this coming from? What? You're giving us these, okay, great, but what is this opposition thing? So in verse 28, as we see, he talks about that. Where does this come from? Well, the reality is, is it's been underlining the whole text the whole time. It always does. And that's the interesting thing that we as Christians have to really grasp and understand. If you remember, Paul, in this letter, we're only still in the first chapter, but in the verses before, he's been sharing his circumstances. He's in the prison because of the gospel. He's not able to preach the gospel out there because he's in prison. And so you look at it and say, well, Lord, I'm the man that's supposed to be called to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Why am I not out there? But it doesn't matter. Because the imperial guard that he's he's shackled to, day and night, 24-7, 365 days, they've been hearing about the gospel. They know why he's there. And the rumors are going around. Not only that... But people out there who are seeing Paul in prison, still sharing the gospel, still trusting in the Lord, and not wavering, are saying, man, I'm going to preach more boldly. Look at that guy. So even in these dire circumstances where he faces either execution or to be set free, which could be, he believes he's going to be set free here, he said. Even in that particular situation, He has no fear. He trusts in the Lord. Paul has been sharing in these these circumstances. His his circumstances are dire. And yet he knows at the same time, even as he writes this, that it is dire for for their church as well. 
The apostolic church at this time was a church under constant pressure, and it didn't let up. If we're honest, it still hasn't let up, has it? We're always under that pressure. Rainey puts it this way for them, and I want you to think about how he puts this. He says at this time, there was the unfriendly aspect both of Roman law and of public opinion to unauthorized religious fraternities. There was the hostility of ardent Jews skillful to stir into activity enmities which otherwise might have been slumbered. But besides, there was an immense pressure of general unbelief. Christianity had to be embraced and maintained against the judgment and under the cool contempt of the immense majority, including the wealth, the influence, the wisdom, the culture. All of that was brilliant, imposing, and conclusive. Christianity was carried forward in those days by a great spiritual power working with the message. It needed nothing less than this to sustain the Christian against the dead weight of the world's adverse verdict, echoing back from every tribunal by which the world gives forth its judgments. Then, he continues, every feeling of doubt or tendency to vacillate created by these influences was reinforced by the consciousness of faults and failings among the Christians themselves. So if you follow that, you've got Rome, you've got the Jews, you've got unbelief, you've got wealth, you've got uh, poverty, you've got philosophy, you've got all these things, including your own doubts. Has anything changed? No. Do you see why Paul is challenging us in this way? This is the world they were in. This is the world we are in. Paul is saying, don't be intimidated. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be surprised when you meet these kinds of adversities. Instead, be brave. Be courageous in the face of real and true opposition. Remember what Jesus said. The world hated me It will hate you. What's interesting as he continues on, as he says, this is a clear sign of their destruction. But to you, it is salvation from God. And why is that? Because, and this is the the thing you got to see here. You just have to see. He says this in verse 29, For God has granted you, to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So what you have is this. Understand this. You have a gift. You have two gifts. You have the gospel that has been given to you. It is not of you. It is of God. You are just just called to receive it. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to save you. Receive it. But when you receive that gift, you must understand this you will also receive the gift of suffering. Do you understand that? You will receive the gift of suffering. Now, I don't know what that looks like, and it can look like a lot of different things. But those are the gifts that you receive from God. 
But Jesus says this. Behold, I have overcome the world. When he rose from the dead, he showed once and for all that he is the resurrection and the life. At that moment when that stone rolled away, whatever that power was that raised him from the dead, it echoes through eternity right now. And it says, Behold, I am making all things new. It's already started. So in the midst of this broken world, it started. And when he returns, he's going to complete the process. So he tells us, look, live in light of the gospel. Delight in the Lord. Rejoice in His goodness and love for you. Spend some time today. You know, the young people are going to gather tonight and they're going to pray and, and they're fasting. And, but you too, as a church, spend some time today thinking about who He is. Delight in Him and rejoice in Him. I'll close with this. I found this quote. This week by E. Stanley Jones, a, a Methodist missionary. And he says this, The early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But in delight, Look what has come to the world. As we live in hope, let us rejoice that because we're here, because the Spirit is in us, we're bringing light to the world. Let us not be shaken. Let us not, not be dismayed. But delight and live out of the gospel. Let us pray.